thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello and welcome to the show where we bring you the latest in science, technology and medicine. I'm Will Tingle and a happy new year from everyone here at The Naked Scientists. This week we're looking back at 2022, a remarkable year for many reasons. Whilst it is easy to be consumed by stories of conflict, climate catastrophe and disease outbreaks, it is still important to remember that this year has been another in stellar scientific breakthroughs, a fair few of which may well help us combat the aforementioned challenges. We hope to bring you some of the weird and wonderful discoveries that were made throughout the scientific community over the past 12 months. Everything from the James Webb Telescope to James Titko falling into a river. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. Just over a year ago, the spacecraft carrying the James Webb Telescope launched. Successfully deployed, it's now sending back incredible images. Chris Smith spoke to the University of Cambridge's public astronomer, Matt Bothwell, about the James Webb's plan to look back to the origin of our universe. Thank get and Decollage, liftoff from a tropical rainforest to the edge of time itself. James Webb begins a voyage back to the birth of the universe. Now, that was NASA's coverage of the launch of its Ariane 5 rocket that was carrying the $10 billion James Webb Space Telescope, which we are told will enable us to see the universe like never before. Well, here to tell us hopefully what is in store for us is the University of Cambridge's public astronomer and author, Matt Bothwell. So, Matt, was it Turkey for you or telescope? Were you watching it? I, I was watching it. It was all about the telescope for me. I was uh, glued to the TV and, and everyone that was passing by, I was uh, you know frantically showing them exciting things happening. It was amazing. Did you watch it? I, I, I was enjoying my turkey too much, <laughs> but it did get off the ground. It did, and it got off the ground absolutely beautifully. I think one thing that me, along with all the other astronomers in the world, were hoping for was a really successful launch, because the more fuel remaining for James Webb, uh, the longer its potential lifespan. And uh, it turned out that the launch went so perfectly, it's going to massively exceed its 10-year lifespan. So we're going to get a very long time uh, of exploring the universe with James Webb. How does it work, and, and what's it actually going to do? Um, well, so the telescope is an infrared telescope, so uh, it gets compared to the Hubble Space Telescope quite a lot. I think a better comparison is the Spitzer Space Telescope, which is a bit less well known, but is an infrared uh, telescope that's going to be taking photos of the universe in these long wavelengths of light. Um, the difference between James Webb and Hubble, of course, is that James Webb is much further away while Hubble is orbiting around the Earth. 
James Webb is going to be beyond the moon, about one and a half million kilometers away, where it's nice and cold and dark to get this very good infrared view of the universe. And it's going to spend 10 years or more exploring all kinds of things from the atmospheres of exoplanets to the first stars that switched on in the universe. And there's there's no risk of it being broken like its predecessor, the Hubble, was launched and then unfortunately it was discovered to have some flaws that required a spacewalk to fix. We don't think that's going to happen here then. Well, hopefully that won't happen. Um, I wish there was no risk of it being broken. Unfortunately, James Webb has an awful lot of potential failure points that might end up uh, with a a non-working telescope. And the problem is, of course, that it's being so far away and not orbiting around the Earth, there's no chance to fix it. Luckily, at the time of recording, about 75% of all the risk involved in James Webb's deployment has been passed with flying colours. So we are well on the way to a perfectly working telescope, but we're not out of the woods just yet. And speaking of working, when are we going to start to see data come back, images that we can analyse? It's going to be a little while, to be honest. So James Webb is going to spend the next few months cooling down to operating temperature, and then hopefully by spring or summer 2022, we'll start to get some nice photo pictures back. And what are the big questions they'll be asking with it? So James Webb has a a few different science goals. Uh, One of them is to explore the atmospheres of exoplanets and uh, look for various things, including uh, what we call biomarkers, signatures for potential uh, organic processes going on in these exoplanets. Another one which is very near and dear to my heart, it's my own research area, is the study of very, very ancient galaxies early in the universe. James Webb is designed to see some of the first stars that ever lit up the dark in the cosmos, and it's something we've never seen before. Uh, So uh, all kinds of things that are just completely on the cutting edge. I mean, it's, it's all incredibly exciting. That was Chris Smith talking to Matt Bothwell. And since then, the James Webb has provided us with some incredible images, including an undiscovered country of early galaxies existing close to the Big Bang, something that no instrument had previously detected. We continue our introspective of 2022 all the way back in February. And whilst that may seem like a while ago, perhaps it wasn't as long as you think, depending on where you're standing. At the start of the year, Professor Jun Yi and his team at the University of Colorado were building the most precise set of atomic clocks ever devised. With these clocks, Professor Yi could prove that time ticks differently depending on how close you are to a large body of mass such as the Earth. And he hoped to harness the measuring of these distortions in time to predict natural disasters and even shed light on dark matter. Robert Spencer takes up the story. In the 2014 movie Interstellar, the protagonists visit a planet deep in the gravitational pull of a black hole. Despite spending only a few hours on the surface, when they return to their colleague in his spacecraft, they find two decades have gone by. People find that hard to believe that time is all relative, there's no absolute time. It's called time dilation, and it all depends on where you're standing. The key is gravity. Space and time are interconnected. When we get close to a massive body, both space and time will be curved. That massive body could be a planet or a star. Curved space causes objects to fall towards the body, like a ball falling to the ground or a spacecraft into a black hole. The curvature of time is more mind-boggling. As you approach a massive body, the time that you measure will slow down. It's all a result of Einstein's theory of general relativity. But it's not just a bunch of equations on a blackboard or a plot point for sci-fi. This was a theory. However, it's been tested over the time and is found to be consistent with the experimental findings. 
To test this theory, all you need is to take a clock to a place with weaker gravity and one to a place with stronger gravity and compare how fast they tick. For example, objects in orbit will clock up a different amount of time to us on the surface of the Earth. And the atomic clocks on board of satellites need to take into account of this time dilation effect. In fact, if they didn't, GPS would stop working in a matter of hours. But we don't need to go to a black hole or even into space at all to measure this effect. If I put a clock upstairs in my living room and one downstairs in my bedroom, there's a difference. Clock downstairs will tick slower than the clock upstairs because downstairs you are closer to the center of the Earth. And that's why I was late to work this morning. My alarm was delayed due to relativistic effects. That's not necessarily true. (laughs) No, perhaps not. The effect would be so tiny that we wouldn't be able to detect it. Or could we? Junyi has been building the world's most precise clocks, and he's gotten pretty good at it. Unlike clocks we may think of, which use, say, the ticking of a pendulum to measure time, Yi's clocks use the ticking of electrons around atoms. The atom we use is called a strontium atoms. They use lasers shooting very precise photons at these atoms to interrogate them. We can use the frequency of the photon as a handle to tell the time. And with high accuracy in measuring time comes the ability to measure the slightest of changes in gravity. In fact, rather than needing the tens of hundreds of miles to satellites or the few yards to upstairs, Yi's team can measure the difference in gravity between two clocks separated by... Just a mere millimeter. Yes, that's right. One millimeter. The difference in the speed of time here is close to nothing. Each second, the lower clock loses... Zero point... This goes on for a while. That's 19 zeros. So this is incredibly precise. But Junyi and his team are not satisfied with simply measuring gravity and time to this level of accuracy. By measuring the curving of space itself, he hopes to build tools with very real applications. So you can turn that into geological survey tools to sense the changing Earth. By measuring how the mass moving underground distorts time itself, he hopes to be able to predict volcanic eruptions or measure glaciers melting. Or perhaps we could measure changes in gravity not caused by normal mass. We may be able to shed light on the mysterious matters called a dark matter that's in our universe but has eluded our detection. But perhaps the most incredible is that when you start measuring gravity on such small scales you start to probe the relationship between general relativity and quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics describes microscopic part of the world, how atoms, how photons, electrons evolve. General relativity typically are associated with the macroscopic view of the world. And getting these two theories to play along together has left physicists scratching their heads for decades. Now, measuring the intersection of these models seems within reach. So it will be fantastic if we can start to connect the very microscopic world of quantum mechanics with the very microscopic world of general relativity. The gravity of this discovery cannot be understated. It may bend our understanding of atoms, space, and time itself. Or perhaps it'll just confirm what we thought to higher and higher precision. Or something in between. It's all relative. Robert Spencer talking with Professor Jun Yi. And from TikToks to, well, TikTok... Social media apps such as TikTok and Facebook have been long scrutinised for aggressive data sharing practices and causing users to feel a greater level of anxiety and self-esteem issues. These problems might even extend out into physical manifestations, as social media was thought to be responsible for an uptick in tick-like behaviours. 
Julia Ravy spoke to Jessica Fry from the University of Florida about what might be responsible. So I'm just on TikTok and I'm looking up the hashtag for Tourette's. The hashtag Tourette's has 5.5 billion views. And some of the top videos are an individual with Tourette's trying to do a COVID test, an individual trying to drink a Coke. And there's also a video here of a young girl with these jerk-like motor movements who's asking, why is this happening to me? So this looks like an individual who has recently developed tick-like behaviours. There's no doubt that these videos are raising awareness of what it is like to live with tick-like behaviours, but are they having an impact beyond that? Jessica Fry from the University of Florida told me what they've been seeing in their clinics over the past year or so. Increased onset of tick-like behaviour, and there is a concern that there is some social media influence involved in the onset of some of these tick-like disorders. One of the things we're seeing is a lot of the patients that come to us with these new onset ticks, they're mimicking a lot of well-known social media influencers. And so they have the same exact or very similar ticks to the ones that they've seen in the videos. There have been historical incidences of functional conditions spreading through populations. There was something called mass hysteria where one person kind of got some sort of thing and then everyone in the school got the same type of thing. And that's on a much grander scale now with social media use because it's everywhere, like viral content going kind of worldwide. And being exposed to this content with viral videos of tick-like behaviours could influence those who already have tick-like conditions or are susceptible to them. The tricky part, of course, is that people who have Tourette syndrome or organic tics, a very common manifestation is if they see people with tics, that can actually be a trigger for their own tics and make them tick more. Since the pandemic, with more teens being isolated and online, the occurrence of people coming across tic-like behaviour videos has no doubt increased, which could be a good or a bad thing. Jessica and colleagues are now trying to understand if social media is impacting tic-like behaviours and have started with a small study looking at the link between social media usage and tick severity. We did see some correlative data between the social media use as well as tick severity. There is no correlation between social media use and tick frequency. And what was particularly interesting was only 5% of participants actually reported using social media to look up things related to ticks and Tourette syndrome. This was a surprise because our hypothesis going into this was that if you're going to be watching more videos on social media related to tics and Tourette syndrome, that may generate more severe, or more frequent tics. So we did see a correlation, but don't really have an explanation for the causation quite yet. These results can be hard to untangle given that stress is a known influencer of increased tic-like behavior. Given the pandemic, the increased social media use, which one is it? You know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Is it the anxiety driving the ticks? Is it the social media use? Is it the pandemic? Is it one of those causing the other? So we don't really know. While larger studies go on to unpick this, Jessica and others have seen one technique which has been found to help reduce tick-like behaviours in some instances. Anecdotally, we've seen that if we educate patients about where they are getting their information from and they kind of 
stop and reduce their social media use, a lot of times the ticks get better. Jessica Fry speaking to Julia Bravey. It's The Naked Scientist with me, Will Tingle, looking back at a year of science. Still to come, how fertilisers affect a plant's electrical field and why teenagers are prone to ignoring their mother's voice. But before we discover those past treasures, we must return to March of this year to do the same. Ernest Shackleton was the explorer who led three British expeditions to the Antarctic and was a pioneer of the Antarctic Exploration Age. During a voyage to the South Pole in 1915, his ship, the Endurance, became trapped in pack ice and sank in the Weddell Sea. Miraculously, all of the crew survived, but the ship was lost for 107 years. That was until the research vessel S.A. Agulas II struck gold. Robert Spencer tells the story. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months in complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honour and recognition in case of success. So ran the apocryphal advertisement, calling for adventurers to join Ernest Shackleton on his fateful mission to cross Antarctica. Fresh out of St John's College, Cambridge, physicist Reginald W. James answered the call as his son John recounts. My father was visiting a friend in a part of Cambridge that he'd never visited before when somebody stuck his head out of a window and said, Hey, Jimmy, do you want to go to the South Pole? After a brief interview with Shackleton, where he was asked, among other things, if he minded losing any toes, James and 27 other men set sail on the ship Endurance. The Endurance was actually a yacht that was built to take wealthy tourists hunting polar bears in the Arctic. Pressed into this new scientific service, and despite the concurrent outbreak of the First World War, Endurance set sail from South Georgia for the Weddell Sea. The weather was rough, and experienced sea hands had advised Shackleton to wait. Shackleton said, no, we're going to go, in spite of the advice from the whaling captains. It wasn't long before the ship was stuck in ice. Endurance broke free several times, but eventually the flow held it fast. The decision was taken to spend the winter in the ship, and to try and complete the expedition the next year, but the elements would have different plans. Nonetheless, R.W. James got to work with his experiments. There's a picture of him taking observations under the stern of the endurance. He was doing magnetic observations, but he got very interested in the navigation side of it. They observed eclipses of the stars by the moon, so-called occultations, to maintain the time on their clocks, critical for navigation in the early 20th century. Nine long months passed. But then suddenly on Sunday afternoon, the ice opened and it went down like a stone. Endurance sank 3,000 metres to the bottom of the Antarctic Sea and into another world. The deep Antarctic is quite rich in biodiversity. You have a big range of invertebrate life, you know, animals without backbones. So you have, for example, all kinds of sponges and corals and sea squirts. And then you have quite a high abundance of things like starfish and sea cucumbers and lots and lots of small worm-like things and mollusks in the seabed as well. Adrian Glover from the Natural History Museum has been studying Antarctic sea environments for years. And all those animals are eating typically food which has fallen from the surface layers of the ocean. In any other waters, the sinking endurance would be part of that food chain. Wood gets eaten by these peculiar animals called shipworms. Experiments run by Glover, published in 2013, showed that shipworms were absent in these seas, partly due to a lack of natural food and partly due to the strong circumpolar currents that act as a buffer between these waters and the rest of the Earth's oceans. 
thus hope was high that the Endurance, if ever found by an expedition, would be in good condition. Earlier this year, such a mission set sail on the S.A. Agullis II, a research icebreaker operated by South Africa. The only clue was the rough, last recorded position of the ship by its captain, aided by James's timekeeping, as the director for exploration, Menson Bound, explains. It wasn't sort of like X marks the spot at all. They broke the search area up into sectors. Eventually, just by really working in a very strict, regimented manner, covering one box, then the next, then the next, guess what? We've found the endurance. The pictures are just remarkable. It's just sitting on the seafloor. The ship is there. It's intact. You can see the paintwork. It's, it's as good as that. It doesn't get any better. It is a beautiful wreck. Quite emotional to see it again. John's brother, Viv, describes a photo he has of the ship from his father's ordeal. I'm looking at it on my wall here, right now. It just hangs there. <laughs> and it looks exactly the same, what we saw on the floor of the sea and what I can see on the wall here. You know, by definition, life after this has got to be kind of downhill. The 28 men watching Endurance sink in 1915 might have agreed. With little hope left, they set out across the frigid waters in the ship's lifeboats. They made land on Elephant Island before Shackleton and a small crew went further on to South Georgia. It's an epic tale of survival as frigid months passed for the men awaiting rescue. They were besieged by frostbite, heart attacks, mental breakdowns, and a diet almost entirely consisting of seals and penguins. Eventually, at the end of August 1916, Shackleton returned on a Chilean Navy tug and rescued the crew. Over two years had passed since the Endurance sailed, and, despite the ordeal and having to shoot their sledding dogs and ship's cat, not a single man perished. R.W. James would go on to become Vice-Chancellor of the University of Cape Town, and two of his students would win Nobel Prizes. But the ship that could so easily have been his grave rests serenely at the bottom of the Weddell Sea, almost untouched, sailing into immortality. Robert Spencer there talking to John James, Adrian Glover and Menson Bound. And from a ship being swallowed up by the cold waters to an animal being swallowed up by a cold-blooded snake... There are 14 species of boa and python, the longest of which is the reticulated python. This species frequently grows to more than six and a half metres. The longest individual, measured in 1912, was 10 metres long. Their size means that these snakes do not rely on venom to catch prey. Instead, they use constriction. These snakes squeeze their prey so hard that blood cannot get to the heart, and in doing so causes the prey to pass out. But surely squeezing this hard should stop the snake's own lung from working too. Speaking with Chris Smith and from Brown University, John Capano. We were really interested in understanding whether or not snakes could actually breathe when they're constricting because they're using their rib cage to kill another rib cage. Similarly, when they eat something, their rib cage kind of gets expanded. We've all seen snakes with really big food items in them. And we were similarly wondering, can they actually breathe when their their body is swollen that, that wide? It sounds like a, a pretty obvious thing, but how do snakes breathe? So snakes breathe with their rib cage. We as mammals are actually kind of special in that we also use a diaphragm. But snakes and lizards only use their rib cage. They rotate the ribs, they make their chest bigger, which then causes a pressure change, which then causes air to rush into their lungs. And so how did you investigate what the snakes were doing then? So we originally were just doing some observational work. We were just watching snakes constrict and feed, and we were kind of noticing that they were breathing with a different part of their body when they were constricting or feeding relative to when they were just kind of hanging out in the cage at rest. So we originally uh, started with some electromyography. It's called EMG. It's a, it's a technique that lets us like actually measure the electrical pulses running through a muscle. 
and we found that the muscles that control breathing, these muscles that actually pull the ribs, they can turn them on and off in different sections of their body with like pretty good control. But that really didn't give us the resolution to answer the question we wanted. So then I had I actually applied to grad school and went to Brown in order to use this technique, x-ray reconstruction of moving morphology, lets me actually look inside of an animal and see how the bones are moving inside a living animal. And then when I did that, I was able to actually use a kind of an experimental setup to prevent rib motions in one part of the body and then see if the snake would then shift it somewhere else, kind of analogous to what would happen during constriction or eating something really big. But we did a really controlled experiment where we could replicate it really easily too. So what do they do then in order to avoid themselves asphyxiating when they're constricting things? How do they do it? So what we found is so snakes have pretty long lungs. They're in boa constrictors. Their lungs are about 30% of their body length. And in other snake species, they can go up to like 70 or 80% of their body length. But in these boas, they have the front part of the lung where gas exchange happens. And then the back part, which is just kind of a bag. And they normally will breathe in the front part. But then when we put the cuff on the front part and we compressed it down, they just stopped using those ribs entirely. And they just started breathing with the back part, which is really amazing because they're actually ventilating with the back region. So they actually just switch and start breathing further back down the tube and drawing air through that part of the lung in the front, even if that part of the body is doing something else. Is there not a sort of chicken or egg situation here then? Because in order to do this sort of behavior, that had to evolve for them to be able to do that in the first place, which then meant they could feed this way. How do you think it appeared, this behaviour, in the first place? Yeah, that's the real difficult question of this study, is it's really hard to tell which came first, the chicken or the egg in this scenario, because you're right, like constriction and large spray ingestion, they like require you to be able to breathe while you're doing them. So it would be really difficult for early snakes to exaggerate these behaviors to like eating prey that's the, like 100% their own, like their own body size. It's like me eating a cheeseburger that weighs 180 pounds in one bite. That would be really difficult if you couldn't already breathe while doing it. So we think that this modular lung ventilation mechanism either preceded constriction and large prey ingestion or sort of involved in concert with it. And then the feedback of being able to breathe a little bit better allows you to maybe constrict something a little bit bigger and then eat something a little bit bigger. And then the feedback of having that ability would then allow you to exaggerate these traits even further. But considering that snakes are literally just a tube of ribs and that they really have this fine rib control, it may also be possible that this like rib control may be one of the earlier traits of snakes is this ability to move ribs all along your body in order to like push into the environment in different ways. And that may have been turned into a ventilation mechanism that may have come from a ventilation mechanism. But just because of the way snakes work, I think that this rib control thing was probably a really early trait within snake evolution that then, and it's hard to tell which one came before before the other ones, but maybe some future work will figure that out for us. John Capano speaking with Chris Smith about that breathtaking story. And from the tight embrace of a serpent to the tight embrace of a loved one. Oxytocin is the brain's hug hormone. It helps us bond with our babies and lovers and makes us more inclined to trust others. And as Claremont Graduate University's Paul Zak found earlier in the year, the older we get, the more of it we make. And this could well be linked to a stronger urge to connect with others. And after hearing the news, James Titko experienced the sudden urge to call someone very special to him. Hello? Hi, Grandma. How are you? Oh, I'm all right. It's James. I know James. How are you? (laughs) I just wanted to call to see how you were. Oh, it's very nice of you, Jim. Thank you very much. No, no worries at all. I'm not too bad, but you don't sound like James. How, why do you say that? 
It'll be because I'm on the studio microphone, probably. Paul Zach and his team have been showing that as you age, your brain trains itself to release more oxytocin, and through further reinforcement from positive social interactions, you have further desire for these behaviours. I asked him how they managed to show this. Well, many neuroactive chemicals like testosterone, estrogen, decline with age. We want to see what the release of oxytocin would do. So we measured the change in oxytocin in blood after a short video in people aged 18 to 99, and then related that change in oxytocin to a variety of behaviors to understand not only is the release changing with age, but is it affecting behavior? And in fact, we found that the older people were, the more oxytocin they released, and the more helping behaviors they engaged in. You said you were showing a video to 100 people. What exactly was the video, and and how, how did you know that it was a sort of an oxytocin inducer? If I use a video, this is a video we've studied extensively in my lab for the last 15 years, and many other people now have used it as well. It's a really consistent way to induce the brain to make oxytocin. There's a video of a father and his two-year-old son, the son's dying of brain cancer. It's super sad, it's very sweet and warm. And then we gave people, in addition, a chance, since we were torturing them by drawing their blood, uh, we paid them, we gave them a chance to donate some of the earnings to the um, research hospital that had produced the video. And then we went further, but we also looked at the change in oxytocin related to previous pro-social behaviors. In this case, in the last year, how much people had donated money, time, and goods to charity. And it's the first time we've shown the acute production of oxytocin is related to retrospective pro-social behaviors. And that's important because it tells us that the change in oxytocin may in fact be tuning up based on your previous history of behavior. So in other words, you can train your brain to release more oxytocin by engaging in more helping behaviors. So there's a key takeaway here for for younger people or people of any age, which is if you have a habit of connecting to others, of helping others, then you're training yourself potentially to be a better oxytocin releaser. The more you release oxytocin, the greater satisfaction in life people have. We've just gone past Easter and Passover and Ramadan's still ongoing. So do you find that your work is sort of consistent with these religious traditions? I think religious traditions have survived many for thousands of years because there's some ancient wisdom captured by them. And what we're finding here is the underlying neurologic basis for that ancient wisdom, which is we can live more fulfilled, um, happier, more satisfied lives by being in service to others. Um, Oxytocin does a couple of interesting things in the brain. It uh, reduces physiologic stress. So that means we have uh, potentially better cardiovascular fitness. It also improves the immune system. So by serving others, by connecting to others, we're actually improving our own uh, mental health, but physical health as well. You hear that now, James? I do hear you. I could smack your bottom. (laughs) Yet. You could. I could, James. Only if I deserved it, I hope. So goodbye then, James. Behave yourself now. I will do. Have a nice day. God bless, James. Bye-bye, dear. James Titko's grandmother there. You can see where he gets his charm from. James is also talking to Paul Zach. 
The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Will Tingle. And we are looking back at our own personal picks for some of the most thought-provoking stories covered on the show in 2022. Still to come, how fertilizer affects plant electrical signals and how nutritious is a human brain. But before that, we just discussed oxytocin in older people, but it wasn't just grandparents making the news in April. Teenagers too. Anyone with a teenager will surely know the feeling that you're being ignored. And as a teenager yourself, you may have felt like interacting with someone else was infinitely cooler than listening to your parents. Well, the reasons behind this might not just be behavioural. A study published back in April suggested that this selective tuning out may actually be biological. Julia Raby heard how from Stanford's Dan Abrams. So we brought in a cohort of 13 to 16-year-olds. We brought in their moms and we recorded their moms saying these very brief nonsense words. T. Schult. And then we had their brain activity measured using fMRI. When they heard both their mother's voice and unfamiliar female voices saying the exact same thing that their mother said. And in contrast to what we saw with the younger kids, in adolescence, we saw the exact opposite response, which is a greater reward response in response to unfamiliar voices compared to mother's voice. So we saw this kind of switch. Was that what you expected to see compared to the younger children? I wish I could say that I saw this coming. (laughs) Sometimes science kind of works like this, where you kind of stumble onto a really cool result. We think it's evolutionarily adaptive. We think that kids, at some point, they need to build their own life, build their own social network, and make their own social world. And we think that the biological process needs to occur by which kids are required to leave their, their family and their, their kind of immediate caregivers. After learning about Dan's work, I had to get a first-hand assessment of my own teenage ears from none other than my mum, Shell. When I was a teenager, did I ignore you? Honestly, I can't think of a time that you did ignore me, to be honest. Maybe at the age of three, you started to want to go your own way. You were more interested in other people then, really. We used to have a pram and you used to face me and you used to have your head on a swivel to see everyone going past. Well, I wouldn't say you actually ignored us. I think you were a very good teenager, to be honest. Or did you feel like what you were saying, like I wasn't listening to you? I, I, I feel more of that now, really. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're in Planet Julia, aren't you? Well, yeah, this is, this is very true. But I'm glad I was going to say I was going to apologise if you felt like that. But then I was going to say it's biology, so... I apologise for biology. Oh, don't be blaming biology. Wasn't that a song by, what was it, Little Mix? Girls Aloud. Oh, Girls Aloud. While we debate naughty pop groups, it seems I've always ignored my parents. But for those living with teens now and are struggling with this, and for teenagers themselves who are maybe being told off for not taking in every word their parents say, I asked Dan if he had any tips based on his findings of how to handle this communication mismatch. I think an important message is that It's easy to kind of maybe malign adolescents for maybe not listening to their parents or for tuning out their parents. And I think as adults, we can all look back on that and say, well, 
I wasn't entirely trying to block my parents out. I was just kind of living my life and focusing on my friends. Adolescents tune into these new social partners, but it's not personal. This is just where their mind is going. And this is just what their, their brain is doing. Maybe for parents to know that this is a, a natural part of adolescent development. When we think about our own behavior and what dictates what we do when we think about listening to someone we think about the words and the instruction not necessarily the voice itself I think it's really interesting that your study has shown it's not the words or the instruction or even the emotion it's just who's speaking yeah you know I think it's easy to take voices for granted they're everywhere we argue that voices are among the most pleasurable stimuli that we have in our everyday lives it helps people feel connected and part of a group and part of a family, it speaks to how important it is to, to hear each other and to connect with each other in, in kind of natural ways that are, you know, without our devices and without texting and all the like. So there you are, blame biology instead of the teenager. Now, it may seem like quite a while ago, particularly after the last few weeks of cold weather, but this summer was one of the hottest and driest on records, with Cambridge Botanic Garden measuring one of the first instances of temperatures in the UK ever reaching 40 degrees Celsius. The trend of rising temperatures seems set to continue in 2023, and the heat in July was so massive that it forced some of our presenters to take drastic measures. That was quite impressive, James. Are you going to take the stairs? I'm taking the slow way in. Christ. I think there was a really um, quite stark difference between the way you got in, James, compared to Nikki, Alex and Simon. <laughs> How long till I acclimatise? <laughs> well, I think you need to move. Give it, give it uh, a minute. OK, I'm good. You're listening to The Naked Scientist and it's our summer special. So that's with me, Harry Lewis, and I've managed to drag James Titko out of the office too. Is it a hot one where you are at the moment? Because it certainly feels like it has been here over the past few days. And to beat the heat before the show kicks off properly, it looks like James and I are going to get lured in for a wild dip in the River Cam in Cambridge. James and I are joined by Nicky Blanning, gliding effortlessly through the water alongside Alex Buxton. And here on the banks with me is Simon Crowhurst. Coming down on such a beautiful day, where are we and, and what are we looking at? Uh, we're on Sheep's Green. We're looking at the River Cam, banked with uh, beautiful willows. So uh, I can see my, my wife and my friend Nikki in the water, swimming along, enjoying the, the water, which at 21 degrees is, is warmer than it usually is during the year. Wild swimming has increased in popularity immensely over the last few years. And we've got so many applicants to, to join our swimming club that we, we can't cope with the numbers. And you said it was 21 degrees, which sounds actually quite warm. I'm quaking in my boots about getting in, Simon, because I hate the cold. But 21, how can you prove that that's 21 degrees? Well, we've got a thermometer in the river there, so we can take a look at the, uh, at the oh, actual let's measurement. It. Let's do that. So here we are with an old-fashioned analogue thermometer. Take it quickly out of the water, and before it has chance to change, you're just under 21 degrees, and you can see the liquid falling immediately as it comes out of the water because it's cooling down in the in the air working a bit like a, a fridge <laughs> james you've just dro- jumped out of the water as well a valiant effort i thought when you Thank got you. in how was it yeah it's definitely a cliche but it's lovely once you're in simon you said that at the moment your particular swimming club it's literally just got too many applicants to be able to support do you think that's representative of 
the rest of the rivers and wild swimming clubs around the UK? Well, there's been a tremendous surge in interest and activity of wild swimming. As long as people do it safely and responsibly, I don't think it's a problem. Uh, Where people just charge into the water without any experience, without being strong swimmers, then you can have problems and people can get into difficulty very quickly. Nikki and Alex, you've swum over to us graciously, I might add. There wasn't quite the um, calamity of when James got in and he was holding his breath as hard as possible. What's it like? How's the river? Oh, it's really beautiful, honestly. It's absolutely gorgeous. I could stay in it for hours. Well, I know for a fact, Nikki, you've actually been out twice today now. You were up this morning, weren't you? I was, yes. I swam in the Lido and uh, I try and swim twice a day at the moment in the summer while it's so nice. I mean, there are health benefits that are supposedly associated with getting yourself in cold water. Obviously, exercise is good. You're in nature, so it's a little perk for your mental health, isn't it? Are these things you think about, or is it just the fact that, you know, I've got, I've got a bit of extra energy, I'm up nice and early, why not get out there and into the wild? It, it becomes an addiction, I think Nikki would probably <laughs> yeah, agree with this. Addiction. It's like your daily fix yeah. of something that's... Um, you know, it's a good addiction to have, yeah. I hasten to add. It's Is one it? that has a positive effect on your physical and your mental health. Yeah. So I find it punctuates the day really well. When I've been for a swim, it almost doubles the enjoyment that you get out of the day. On a day like today, it makes complete sense to make use of it, seeing as it's on the doorstep. Are you guys coming out here when it's not warm and sunny, when it's not 21 degrees in the river? Yes, I think the coldest I've swum has been actually the, the river's been frozen and I've cut a, a cut a circle in the ice and swum round in a circle. You can't see it, but I'm astonished. Nikki, are you, are you, was this witnessed by anybody? Yeah. I, yes, I have, I have photographs. Yes. Yes. We waded through snow to get to the river and you can't even see the edge of where we the We waded through floods. Floods and snow. water. That's what I mean by an addiction. And as well, this is based on swimming that's been done here historically isn't it mm. there's there's photos of this exact area yeah taken before, on that before indoor pools were built before that everybody swam in the river my mother was brought up in cambridge and she learned to swim in the side river here in the 1930s you had to swim as a child you had to show you could swim in the in the shallow side river before you were allowed in the main river and there were people actually in charge of all this well that's probably changed quite a lot Today, there isn't really a body or governing body that does look after swimmers in wild rivers, is there? And I, I mean, that brings me on to, I guess, a more general question. It's not quite the, the picturesque, clear, colourless water of the Maldives. There is a, it is a dark kind of murky green, isn't it, the river cam? So do you feel safe when you get in and out? Is, this, is there any worry about the cleanliness of the water? Uh, yes, there are concerns about the water quality, and we are downstream of uh, water treatment plants uh, the water quality does vary there are people who heroically monitor the uh, the water quality through the year we know there are times when the, the bacterial load is higher some of that is due to release from sewage work some of that is due to more suspension of particles in the water when the river flow is higher and it's hard to separate out those those two effects and how do you feel, Nikki? Is there any fear when you get in? Or, or? Uh, I certainly think about it more when it's flooded and there's been heavy rainfall. Um, I think it, you have to be more sensible then, and, and I tend to keep my head out of the water. But I, it doesn't stop me swimming, but I, I do think about that. Right, well, saying that, I think I've put it off long enough now. Yes, I better, you better go in. Go I in better get in as well. <laughs> yes, yes, you've got to go in. Yes. Go on then. God, it's going to be so cold. Okay. Don't build it up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whoa!
James and Harry enjoying, if you can call it that, a wild swim with Simon Crowhurst, Nikki Blanning and Alex Buxton. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Will Tingle. Still to come, how does a black hole spin and how nutritious is a human brain? But before that, an extraordinary study into the electrical fields around flowers. Electricity has been around long before we learned to harness it, so it stands to reason that many organisms will have evolved methods of manipulating electric fields as well. I spoke to Sam England about how these fields are formed and the way that synthetic fertiliser may be affecting them. The electric fields around flowers kind of have two main sources that we're aware of. One comes from their interaction with the atmosphere. So these flowers are conductors to some extent in the same way that the metal in your wires and your electrical appliances at home are conductors. Actually, um, plant tissue is quite conductive too. Now, the interesting thing is that these plants are obviously stuck in the ground, but they're pointing up above the ground into the atmosphere. And the atmosphere actually has an electric field in it too. And when this gets really strong, that's when you see things like thunder and lightning. But even in fair weather, there is still some amount of vertical electric field in the atmosphere. What this means is that the grounded plant relative to the air around it actually has an electric field coming off of it because it's not at the same electrical charge as the surrounding air. But also, in addition to these kind of electric fields that are generated by their interaction with the atmosphere, the plant itself also has all kinds of physiological processes going on inside it, where it's you know transporting ions and signaling within the plant to, between cells that also generate an electric field um, external to the flower. So those are the two main sources um, of kind of electric field around flowers that we, we know of at the moment. And how would insects such as bees use these electrical fields to detect the presence of flowers? Something that's really cool and that we've only really discovered over the last decade or so is that a couple of different species of insects are able to detect electric fields in air. And the way that they do this is that basically hairs on their body get pushed around by the electric field. If you think about the same way as when you charge a balloon up with your hair, the balloon can kind of push your hair around. Essentially, the same thing is happening with the tiny little hairs on these bees as they're entering into the electric field around flowers. And the cool thing is, is that it might actually provide some useful information to them. One, in theory, they could be using it to just detect the location of flowers. But of course, they have excellent senses of smell and also vision that help them do that. But something that we have discovered previously is that when a bee visits a flower, it modifies that electric field around the flower for some amount of time on the order of a few minutes. And so then a bee that comes along after that first bee might be able to detect that difference in the electric field and essentially use it as a cue as to whether a bee has visited that flower recently and that maybe the nectar might be uh, diminished because it's been visited recently. So it might basically give these bees a bit of a clue as to whether um, there's a good amount of nectar in that flower or not. What is it about synthetic fertilisers that alters the detectability of these flowers? We try to unravel this a little bit in our study, but for sure this is something where the exact mechanisms kind of need to be delved into uh, in a little bit more detail. We think there's probably, again, two main ways that this is happening. 
One is that it just modifies the uh, the electrical properties around the surface of the flower, but also in the air around it by changing things like the humidity, but also the conductivity, like the electrical conductivity on the surface of the flower. And this essentially means that the electric fields kind of travel in a different way through the material, which can make them stronger or weaker. And in the case of the fertilizers that we looked at, it seemed as if they actually make the electric field stronger, which might be quite confusing to the bees. The other way that it might be having an impact is that a lot of these harsh chemicals that are found in synthetic fertilizers can stress the plant out. And when they do this, that will basically cause the plant to start moving ions around, kind of signaling within the, the plant to, between different cells to essentially tell other parts of the plant that, oh, maybe we're in a bit of trouble here, which again, that will change the electrical profile of the flower. Finally, what would be the ramifications on insect populations and their relationship with flowers because of this discovery? This is one of those things where there's really a huge arsenal of evidence that's beginning to accumulate that there are just so many different ways that a lot of our activity and a lot of the chemicals that we're introducing into the environment are having quite adverse effects on quite a few different species of insects. We already know that a lot of fertilizers and uh, pesticides are quite harmful towards pollinating insects like bees. And our study really just adds another dimension to how that's happening. But of course, that does somewhat optimistically open potentially new avenues for how we can try and mitigate these negative impacts uh, in the future as we continue to develop these technologies. Shocking stuff, isn't it? And let's round off the review of 2022 with a look back at a couple of the bizarre and thought-provoking questions that were answered on one of our many Q&A shows, starting off with a real brain teaser that Chris Smith posited to author Jonathan Reisman. Jonathan, this question's for you. I think it must have been sent in by Hannibal Lecter, actually. Are you ready for this? It says, how much nutrition would you get from eating a human brain? Well, besides the legal and ethical questions about eating another human's brain, it's a very nutritious and very high calorie uh, meal. The average brain is about, a human brain is about three pounds or about 1.3 or so kilograms. And 60% of it is fat. So myelin, which is the substance that sort of insulates all the nerves, if the nerves were, were wires, myelin would be the sort of rubber coating on the outside. So a lot of that fat uh, would provide a lot of calories, probably enough calories to last you several days, uh, you know, if you had only one human brain to subsist on. There's also protein, various kinds of uh, minerals, some B vitamins as well. And I don't know if the person asked for a recipe when they submitted this question, but I would go with the traditional brain sandwich preparation method common in the city of St. Louis, which is to slice the brain, dip it in egg, spice it, and then deep fry it before putting it on a uh, rye bread with a hot mustard for the sandwich. Delicious. I might ask the rest of the panel for their their brain-related recipes. Catherine? I have a question. I remember seeing a sign once many years ago that said smart cannibals don't eat brains because of the diseases that can be transmitted and accumulate uh, within the species because of it. Is that true? Yes, the most famous example is uh, diseases of the uh, prion or prion form. Um, it, there's a disease called kuru, common in, uh, historically common in Papua New Guinea, where um, cannibalism was more common perhaps in ancient times than it is now. But uh, there was ritual eating of, of 
people's brains after death. And this uh, prion disease, Kuru, was transmitted from person to person. Uh, there's also, you know, mad cow disease or bovine spongiform encephalopathy, uh, which is which can be transmitted, though I'm not totally clear how common it is for it to be transmitted to humans. But uh, eating the nervous tissue or the brain of infected animals does put you put you at risk. I, I think the risk of contracting any of those prion diseases including mad cow or uh, chronic wasting disease, which is very common in white-tailed deer here in the U.S. The transmissibility to humans is not uh, not well documented, but certainly in the case of Kuru, uh, which every medical student in the world knows about because it's such a unique instance, uh, there's definitely a risk there. Jonathan Reisman there. And in such a stellar year for astronomy, Rosemary Williams was asked this cosmological quandary. Rosemary, over to you. This one's from Rich, and he's wondering about black holes, and he's heard that black holes are rotating. So what's rotating about them? So in order to understand why black holes rotate, we have to understand how they form. So black holes, essentially, they form when you have a star that collapses under its own weight. There's there's two main processes happening inside a star. You have gravity that's pulled all of this hydrogen and helium together, and then you have a nuclear fusion at the core um, that's essentially, you know, forcing all of these hydrogen atoms together to form helium and then three heliums together to form a carbon. And that's providing a lot of energy that's stopping the collapse. But eventually stars are going to run out of this fuel at the center and you no longer have a big force outward due to nuclear fusion. So you just have gravity forcing itself inward and that star starts to collapse on itself. Now, all of the stars that we have observed have had some sort of spin. They've all rotated. And in physics, just like there's conservation of energy, you have this thing called conservation of angular momentum. You have to keep the same momentum over over time, over everything. You have to maintain it. So when the black hole is collapsing, it's going to keep that momentum of the star that it that existed before it, right? So you have a star that's spinning, much like you have uh, you know, an ice skater that's spinning. They bring their arms in. They spin faster. That's the same thing that's happening. You have a star that's spinning. It collapses in on itself. It still has to spin. And the question of what exactly is spinning? Well, you have a singularity at the center of a black hole. And we usually say kind of hand wavy. It's it's this infinite density thing. You have, you have a lot of mass in this infinitesimally small space. But in reality, it does have some volume. It's just so, so, so small that we can just kind of say that, that it doesn't. And so it is that tiny, tiny volume of mass at the center of a black hole that's spinning. Now, we don't exactly know what is happening at the center of, the bla- of a black hole, and, and we may never know. So it's important to say that. But that's, you know, what we've theorized to have happened based off of equations and, and physics and all of that. But physics gets super wonky on these small scales. And speaking of Q&As, our next show is a Q&A. So if you have any scientific questions for our panel of experts, do send them over to chris at nakedscientist.com. Well, that's your lot for the best of 2022. It's been a pleasure to bring you all of the breaking science news. We hope for similar breakthroughs in 2023. Thanks to all of you for listening. And thanks to everyone that featured on our shows. And if you were looking to give us a belated Christmas gift, you can always support the show by donating on our website. You can do that at nakedscientist.com slash donate. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Will Tingle. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. 
the nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.